So what happens uh, after we die? What happens after we die? Job is perhaps the oldest book in the uh, Bible, and Job asked that question uh, very straightforward. He said it like this, Job 14, 14, if a man dies, will he live again? Job says, look, death is a certainty, but Job, Job wants to know, is there a resurrection after the dead, or is this it? Is this life it? Is this all there is? It's one of the two most um, important questions that anybody could ever ask and that every person has to answer. Now, in our culture, obviously, we do everything we can to avoid death. We try to block it out. But it's a reality because the truth is we're all terminal. Death comes for everyone. And no matter what medical advancements have been made, no matter what the medical research uh, may bring forth that is helpful, the mortality rate has never changed. It's 100%. Every man, every woman must face death. And as odd as this question may sound, I'm not sure it's been asked very much, so I thought I would ask it, what is death? What is death? More than likely, we've all seen it. We've seen the absence of life in something or someone that was formerly living, but what is death? And the first thing that we need to realize from a biblical standpoint, from the truth standpoint, is death is not the end. Death is not the cessation of existence. That's a common view held in the world that when a person dies, they no longer exist. They come to an end and that's it. But that's not the biblical teaching on death. In fact, the Bible teaches the very opposite. Death, according to the Bible, is simply the separation of the body and the soul. In life, our souls is the real us. The body houses the real us, the soul within us. But the Bible says when you die, there's a separation. The body is taken away, it ceases to work, it's taken away, it's taken off to a morgue or a funeral home or wherever to later be buried in the ground where it will remain. But the soul is eternal. Because once we come into existence, once God creates a living soul, that soul lives forever. Therefore, each one of us has a living soul. Again, once you are born, you live eternally. Because according to Genesis 1 verse 27... God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created man. Male and female, he created them. So man is created in the image of God, the one who is eternal. And because God is created in in the image of man, man has a spirit, a soul. Uh, He is unlike any other created being, unlike the animal kingdom. Man has both a physical and a spiritual component because he's been specially created to have fellowship with his maker. The Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity into man's heart. That every man has a sense of time. Every man has a sense that he was created for eternity. That there really is something beyond the grave. That when he dies, his body doesn't just go into the ground and face corruption, but there's something more out there, something eternal, and more importantly, someone eternal. Someone with whom we are all accountable with. Someone he made to be Uh, have a a relationship with. And that's why men fear death. That right there is why men fear death. And they do whatever they can to stay alive. Because deep down inside, all men know that there is a creator whom they're accountable to, a creator to whom they've personally offended. And all men know that once they take their last breath, they're going to face him in holy judgment. That's why men and women are fearful of dying. And rightfully so. They should be. The Bible says it's appointed that a man wants to die, and after this comes judgment. The Bible says there's a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. 
So death is not the end. Death is not the cessation of existence. So again, according to the Bible, death is nothing more than the separation of the body and the soul. Again, the body is mortal. It's given over to corruption, to decay. But the soul lives forever. The soul is eternal. So then the question is, what happens to the soul then at death? What happens to the soul? Because the soul is eternal, it lives on forever in conscious eternity. Again, the body dies and it goes to the ground, but the soul goes immediately into conscious eternity into one of two places, either into the presence of God or to a place of punishment. And it will remain that condition in that condition that it entered into eternity forever, again, waiting a future day of the resurrection of the body. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that every man will one day be raised from the dead, that every man, woman, child who has ever lived on this earth will experience resurrection, a literal, physical resurrection. So again, Job asked that question, if a man dies, will he live again? And the Bible would answer that question with an emphatic yes. In fact, Job goes on to answer the question in the very next sentence of Job 14.14, if a man dies, will he live again? And then he says, all the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. Later on in the book of Job, Job in chapter 19, verse 25 says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes shall see, and not another. My heart faints within me. Job believed, and he was overwhelmed by the promise, that though his flesh would uh, see corruption, though he would die, that same flesh would be brought back to life by resurrection. It would be changed. And he would see God again. From my own flesh I shall see. With my own eyes I shall see him. Daniel said the same thing. Those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, and those these to everlasting life, others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Daniel 12. New Testament teaches the same truth of a bodily resurrection, a literal Bodily resurrection, Luke 14, 14, the Lord spoke of the resurrection of the righteous. John 6 and 39, he describes this as the will of him who sent me, that all that he gives me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Before raising Lazarus from the dead, John 11, verse 25, Jesus promised, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Apostles preach the same thing. Acts chapter 4, verse 2 records the Jewish authorities were greatly disturbed because they were teaching people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Paul proclaimed the doctrine of a bodily resurrection. He did it to the skeptics on the, the Greek philosophers there in Athens on Mars Hill, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 23, he's standing before the Sanhedrin, and he began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Acts 23 and 6. Paul gives an entire chapter in 1 Corinthians verse 15, or chapter 15 defending the bodily resurrection of the dead. Verse 21, he writes, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, uh, uh, Paul reminded the Corinthians, We know that if this earthly tent, which is our house, house is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 
To the Philippians, Paul declared that Jesus Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity to the body of his glory, Philippians 3.21. At the rapture, Paul says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, 1 Thessalonians 4. John, in his epistles, uh, wrote uh, of the future resurrection, when he said, Beloved, we are now children of God, not as the, and it is not appeared as what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we will see him just as he is, 1 John 3 and 2. So the Bible over and over repeatedly uh, declares there's a resurrection from the dead because man is made in the image of God. Therefore, we, we are eternal beings. Therefore, I've told you this before, but being a man, being a woman is the most profound thing in the entire universe because once you're born, you live forever. Life is not all there is. Nobody just goes out of existence at death. The Bible teaches there's a universal resurrection for all men. The Bible teaches there are two kinds of resurrection, one to eternal life and one to eternal judgment. So the most amazing truth is, again, the dead are going to rise. The dead are going to rise. That's the teaching of the Bible, and that's the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in this portion of Scripture. Look at verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which who, all who are in the tomb shall hear my voice, and shall come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So that's our subject for this morning, the two resurrections. The two resurrections and the fact that the dead shall hear Christ. Now again, we've talked about this numerous times in, in the study of the book of John. Again, the two most important questions that anybody has to answer, and anybody, everybody has to give an answer to, is who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus Christ is? Right? And I probably should preface it and say it's not just who do you think Jesus Christ is, but who is Jesus Christ? That's probably a better question. Who is he? Who is he really? And then what happens to you after you die? Who really is the person of Jesus Christ and what happens to you after you die? Because again, the answer to both of those questions determines how you live your life in time and determines your eternal destiny. And this portion of scripture that we've started into, really first uh, 17 all the way down to verse 47 is profoundly rich truth. It's one of the greatest discourses in the Bible uh, uh, on the, uh, the true identity of the person of Jesus. And he makes, again, repeatedly startling claims that uh, the, the most startling claim that anybody has ever made, he repeatedly says that he's none other than God come in the flesh. He's none other than God come in the flesh, and he has the power to impart spiritual life to all dead sinners. He has the power to literally, physically raise every individual who has ever lived from all of human history or throughout all of human history from the dead. He says he has the power to judge them eternally. Those are pretty remarkable claims for anybody to make. Those kind of claims instantaneously move Jesus out of the category of a mere man. They move him out of the category of a mere man. They move him out of the category of a, a religious philosopher or a moral example, etc., and so forth, great teacher. Those kind of claims put him in a category by himself, and those kind of claims are either true or they're false. There's no in-between with Jesus. Either he is either who he claimed to be, the Lord of glory, God come in the flesh with the power that he has claimed to raise the dead and impart life, or he is a liar or he is some kind of lunatic, or perhaps he's demonic. Those are the categories. 
Now, the fact of the reality is he is the Lord of glory. The fact of the matter is he is God come in the flesh. He is the one who has the power to raise the dead. He is the one who has power to give spiritual and physical life. He is the one who is the ultimate judge of all judges. He will judge every man and woman and sentence them accordingly. He is the ultimate judge. Now, since that's true, and since statistics are that one out of one people die, in light of the certainty of uh, death coming, the fact that judgment is coming for all men, either a resurrection to life or a resurrection to judgment, then you better make sure that you're ready to face death. Now, you better make sure that you're ready to face death when it comes. I read a story a couple of weeks ago. I wanted to share it with you a couple of weeks ago, but I just couldn't fit it in. But I thought this is a good spot to fit it in. It's from the great uh, uh, 18th century evangelist, George Whitfield. Right? So set that kind of setting in your mind. Right? And he saw some criminals. And they were riding in the back of a cart, a horse-drawn cart. And they were on their way to the gallows. And amazingly, Whitfield noted that they were arguing about who would sit on which side of the cart. And I thought to myself, you know, that's a great picture of the vast majority of humanity stupidly indifferent to what is in front of them, stupidly indifferent to the matters of eternity. To know that death is coming and it's coming soon and you're headed to the gallows, does it really matter what side of the cart you're sitting on? And instead of arguing with those fellows, uh, the rest of the group that's headed towards judgment, you might think it might be the best in their interest to consider what comes next. Same thing with us. It might be in our best interest to stop all the nonsense that we're involved with in the world and ask the more important question, what comes next and am I ready to face it? Am I ready to face death? Am I ready to face the judge? Because again, there's only two kinds of people in the entire world. Those who are spiritually dead, who face eternal judgment, and those who have eternal life. So again, in light of the facts that Jesus is who he says he is, he's the one who imparts life, he's the one who gives eternal life, he's the judge of all judges, the judges of all people who've ever been born again uh, in this planet, wisdom would persuade us to make sure that we are right before God. And the only way that you can be right before God is by grace alone, through faith alone, placing your confidence completely in the person of Jesus Christ alone, not in your works, not in your effort. Now, again, in the context of John 5 here, you know the story, right? He's just healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. The Jewish religious leaders have come. They've accused him of breaking the Sabbath. Uh, The Jewish religious leaders hate Jesus. They see him as a blasphemer. But Jesus vindicates himself from uh, uh, breaking their Sabbath by, again, over and over again, stating the fact that he's equal with God. We saw that in that testimony of Jesus from verses 17 through 23. He's equal with God in nature, equal with God in works, equal with God in love and knowledge, equal with God in sovereign power, equal with God in judgment. Therefore, he's equal to God in worship. He's equally worthy to be worshipped, right? Again, all these claims claiming that he is God in the flesh. We spent some time last time looking at verse 24 which in the context really is not an evangelistic verse, but more of a proclamation. It really is another statement proclaiming that Jesus is God, that he gives spiritual life to those whom he chooses. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes uh, him who sent me has eternal life. It's present tense, right? Present tense possession. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. 
Right? Those who believe, those who hear, have eternal life because Christ is the one who gives them that eternal life. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about regeneration. He's talking about being born again, born, uh, born from above. Has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So again, if you affirm the truthfulness of the scripture, that you're a sinner, you're needed of a savior, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is that savior, the one who hung upon that cross on Calvary and shed his blood as a substitute for you, and you flee to that cross, you place your faith in him completely, in his finished work, and in his finished work alone, then at that moment you pass from death to life. You've passed from death to life, you pass from no more condemnation, no more judgment. Because you have formerly heard the voice of God and you live because God in his kindness has opened your heart, your ears to receive that truth that he is the Savior and he is your only hope. So verse 24 it really is a tremendous statement concerning, again, the deity of Christ. And it's also a tremendous statement concerning the kindness of Christ. That, again, those whom he awakens from the dead have eternal life. And eternal life can never be lost. Because if it can be lost, it's not eternal. In fact, the person who faces or possesses eternal life will never face God's judgment, will never face God's condemnation because all of his sin has been dealt with in Christ. If passed out of judgment, out of the realm of death, into the realm of life, eternal life to be forever safe by, again, the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, my friends, the most important person to ever walk this planet. Better get right who Jesus is better get right what comes next you better get right you're standing before jesus christ and again place all your hope and faith in him and not in yourself whatsoever now in verses 25 and 26 we saw that that jesus talked about the fact there's going to be a spiritual resurrection there is a spiritual resurrection verse 25 truly truly i say to you an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the son of god and those who hear shall live so jesus is talking about the fact that he has the power the ability to give spiritual life and the fact that it's already occurring, the saving work of Christ, the redeeming work of Christ. People are becoming spiritually alive in his presence, right? Remember the woman at the well, uh, the, the many who heard the testimony of the woman at the well, and then they came for themselves and listened to Jesus. And uh, the, so the Samaritan village, and then the nobleman's son who believed upon the person of Jesus, etc. and so forth. I gave you examples of the power of Jesus to raise people from the dead. I made a reference to Lazarus in John 11 again. that said, if Jesus has the power to impart life to dead Lazarus, right? If he has the supernatural ability to call Lazarus forth and Lazarus can hear and obey that command to come out of the tomb, again, because of the power of the person of Christ, if Jesus has that power over physical death, and most certainly Jesus has the power to bring the spiritually dead to life, right, so that they can receive uh, eternal life. And sinners are instantly saved, again, when they hear and trust the voice of God, because with the command to believe, God gives the power to believe, right? It's a gift of God's grace. How does dead Lazarus hear? He can't. Inability. He has no power to hear. He has no power to raise himself up from the dead because he's dead. But God in his kindness, Christ in his kindness, gives him the power to hear, the power to obey, the power to get up, the power to come forth because salvation is a gift of God's mercy, a gift of grace by, by the kindness of Christ. So verse 26, Jesus explains why he's the one who can impart spiritual life to those who hear his voice. Just as the Father, he says, has life in him, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. 
Now, God the Father, I mean, he's claiming he's equal, he's equal with God, right? So he gets, keeps making these statements over and over again. God the Father is the author of life. He's the origin of life. He's the self-existent one. He's the uncaused cause. Everything comes from him, proceeds. All life comes from him, from God. Uh, it doesn't come from anyone else but him. God is the only individual, the only person in the entire universe that has life in himself. Every other form of life is dependent upon someone else, someone else before him. Before us, right? We're not here by our choice. We're here by someone else before us making certain choices, right? The only person who has life within himself is God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And none of us as individuals, none of us as human beings, sinful human beings, can cause, generate, or or cause or generate life for ourselves. Again, someone else in front of us made those choices. Likewise, no sinful human being can ever generate eternal life for themselves. Because eternal life only comes from God. Only, eternal life only comes from the one who possesses it. And again, because Jesus is equal to the Father, he is infinite God, the Son possesses life, and eternal life is in himself from all eternity. For just as the Father has life in himself, so even he gave to the Son also who, uh, to have life in himself. It's been suggested by some in the Greek text, you could actually render the verse like this, for as the Father has self-existence, so he has given to the Son to have self-existence through eternal regeneration, right? The Father has self-existence, uh, the Son has self-existence, so God has given that a gift to men whom he chooses. God, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, John chapter 1, who was in the beginning, right? In the beginning, it goes on to say he was the creator, right? He was the creator of all things that ever existed. So before the beginning, what was there? Well, there was God. Right? Before creation, who was there? God. Right, the eternal one. Continue to go back as far as you want in eternity past. God was always there, always there, because He is the one who has eternal life, the one who always was. Now, Jesus is going to turn the attention just a bit here. He's going to start talking about physical resurrection. He's talked about spiritual resurrection. Now he's talked about physical resurrection. Again, the fact that everybody who's ever died is coming out of the grave. Everybody who's ever died is coming out of the grave, and they're all going to stand before Christ, who will judge them. Verse twenty-seven. And he gave him authority to execute, God the Father gave him the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So Jesus has the power to give life and the authority or the power to execute judgment. And he says, because he is the Son of Man. I told you before, the Son of Man is one of Jesus' own favorite uh, designations that he took upon himself. It's derived out of Daniel's messianic description of the Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. The Son of Man who has given dominion and glory and kingdom and all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which shall not, excuse me, be destroyed. So again, it's a claim to deity. Jesus has claimed that he's God come in the flesh, that he is a fully man, but he's also deity. He is the God-man. He is the one who entered into full humanity to experience life as a man, uh, to experience life uh, in all the uh, experiences of uh, of joys and happiness and sorrow and fears and trials and ups and downs. He he is a man who is not uh, untouched by our feelings or infirmities, but he is the one who is without sin, the only one without sin, the one who experienced temptation yet never sinned. He is the Son of Man. He is the one whom God the Father has committed judgment to in this world. So because he is the perfect 100% God and perfect 100% man, eternal God in the flesh, he is the one whom God the Father has given power to judge. 
power to judge mankind, the Son of Man, the one who has the power to raise the dead, again, from all generations throughout all of human history, he is therefore the one who has the power and the authority that belongs to God to judge all men eternally. He gave authority to judge, to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Verse 28, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So again, Jesus is repeating the reality. There's a judgment coming, that there's life after death. There's a coming resurrection, and that resurrection will be followed by judgment. And again, he says there's going to be two resurrections, one unto life and one unto judgment. So he says again in verse 28, do not marvel at this. Look, don't be amazed, fellas. Loose paraphrase. Don't be amazed. Don't be scoffers at what I'm saying. Don't scoff at the fact. Right? It's somewhat of a presumptive, of a presumptive strike, if you will, uh, to those uh, ears of the Pharisees that are standing around him. It must have been shocking. I mean, their jaws must have been to the floor, all the things that he's saying up to this point. And he doesn't back off. He just keeps piling it on. Don't marvel. Don't be shocked. Don't scoff. Do not marvel at this, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear my voice and shall come forth. So again, most amazingly, Jesus says he's going to empty all the tombs. Straightforward what he says, right? He's going to empty all the graves. All the bodies are coming forth. All the dead bodies are coming forth. They're coming up out of the ground. They're coming up out of the seas where they have fallen. Again, those people who died long ago, their their bodies have disintegrated into dust, those who died through some kind of an explosion, or those who died through a fire or were cremated. He says, you know what? I have the power to bring them all back. I have the power to bring them all back together. I have the power to take all those little pieces and all those little parts that are scattered all over the place and recreate them. I have the power to awaken the dead. I have the power to give the dead a physical form. I have the power to take their bodies, bring them back, recreate them, and then I have the power to join them back with their spirit, with their soul. That again, if they're dead, they're already either in the presence of God, in eternal joy, or those who are apart from Christ already in judgment out of the presence of God. He says, I'm going to bring them all, I'm going to bring them all back. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to bring them out of the tombs. I'm going to give them bodies, and they're going to have bodies that are fit for eternity. Either a body that's fit for heaven or a body that is fit for eternal hell. Now look, again, that's a pretty bold claim. That again moves him out of this nonsensical talk that people always want to defer to. Well, hey, Jesus is a good man, just some kind of great moral philosopher, some kind of religious leader. You know, he never gave people that option. And the only reason that people say nonsensical stuff like that is because they've never picked up this book and read. They talk from that which they don't know. Have you not found this book? We were discussing that the other night at a small group. Have you not found this book just amazing? This book that you've picked up and read before numerous times, and now as we're kind of piling through it or plowing our way through it very slowly, going, man, I never saw that before. Man, I never saw that before. He really did say that, didn't he? That he's God. He really did say that he's going to bring everybody out of the tomb. I've read it before, but I didn't realize what, right? And again, somehow we look over to the top of things that we know to be true. Now, the unbeliever is not even looking, right? If we're, if we're missing things that we've read numerous times, 
we would expect the unbeliever who's not even interested in understanding the truth to miss things that they've not even, they've not even read and speaking out of uh, ignorance. You can't put this man in any kind of category. Either He's either God come in the flesh or he's demonic. Some kind of lunatic. Jesus repeatedly claimed he was God come in the flesh and he proves it repeatedly in his ministry, but I won't go there. He claimed that he was God come in the flesh. He had omnipotent power. Again, mind-boggling power. Power to recreate every human being. Power again to bring all their molecules back together. Power to give them life. Power to bring them into his presence. Power to, for them to come before him and face him in judgment. It is again astonishing beyond comprehension, beyond imagination, kind of a proclamation, declaration of power. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear my voice and shall come forth. Verse 29 continues, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Do not marvel at this, an hour is coming. Remember, we talked about this back up in verse 25. It's not hours like a, a literal hour. It's a time period. An hour is coming and now is. Right? There's a, a spiritual resurrection that is coming, that is a part, that is happening. Again, I made reference to that. It was happening in his presence. But there's a physical resurrection also. Now, this hour has been going on for about 2,000 years now, and it will go on until the rapture of the church. When believing Christians who are dead will be raised, and those who are alive at the time of the coming of the Lord will be caught up in the air, and they'll be transformed on the way up. They'll be given bodies that are fit for eternity. So it's at the rapture that starts the resurrection, the physical resurrection that is going to happen. One of two resurrections, right? Either to life or to death, general categories, I say too. Now, I preface this right up front because I don't want to confuse you, and I'm probably going to confuse you, so I warned you, you if you follow me where I'm going now. And I'm not going to do a full exposition on it at the moment, uh, uh, this morning. I am going to do it. I think the Lord's put it on my heart. I'm going to do it here so, uh, uh, Lord willing, here in a few weeks in the evening. But you can listen to where I'm going, or you can turn over and listen, and if I lose you, just listen. I'll, I'll bring you back in. You'll be okay. But over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is giving explanation. It's really God through Paul giving explanation. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Now, asleep, of course, in the New Testament is a euphemism for dead, right? For death. He's describing the dead body, again, not the soul. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as, those, as the rest of those who have no hope. Right? Now, the world has no hope when death comes. We're the only ones who have hope, we who believe upon Christ. We have hope because we worship a risen Savior, right? We worship a risen Savior, therefore death is not the end. We understand that. We have hope in one who has defeated death for us on our behalf. Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So at the rapture of the church, Jesus will come back. He'll collect the redeemed. He'll take them back to heaven. Again, those who died, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, they'll be raised, gathered together, taken back to heaven with the Lord. Verse 15, Paul says, for we say this to you by the word of the Lord. That means really that he's, 
revealing something that was uh, the New Testament referred to as a, a mystery, a, a sacred secret, something that had not yet been revealed. So this is kind of new revelation. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and voice of the archangel with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So in a moment, in a twinkling of eyes, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, the dead in Christ are going to be raised. The dead in Christ are not going to miss the rapture of the church. Right? There, there's a resurrection coming. And they're the first participants in the resurrection. That's the point I want to make. They're the first participants. And, and that's exactly what John or Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 28. Don't marvel at this. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb, and again, listen, put yourself in the time spot, what he's talking about. An hour is coming. That means it's what? Future. An hour is coming in the future. The souls of the unrighteous dead, the ones who are now in heaven with the Lord, is what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 and 8, absent from the body, present with the Lord. They're going to be raised. They'll be raised, right? An hour is coming in which all in the tomb shall hear my voice, shall come, there shall come forth. And again, that's what Paul's talking about here in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel with the trumpet of God. And just by way of uh, information, that's not the, one of the trumpet judgments out of Revelation 8 through 11. It's just the call to meet God. The dead in Christ shall rise first, verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we will be with the Lord uh, always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. What happened to my dead loved ones? You know, they, they're gone. They're going to be taken up. They're going to be resurrected. Right? They'll, they'll come up first. And we who are alive, we're going to be caught up. Herpazo is the word in the Greek. It means to snatch away, take away. Uh, you get the word rapture from the Latin transliteration of the word harpazo, rapturo. So again, Jesus back in John says, don't marvel at this. An hour is coming in which those who are in the tomb shall hear my voice, and they're coming forth. So again, everybody's coming out of the tomb. Again, the first one up are the righteous dead, right? The righteous dead in Christ, right? So the first great resurrection uh, of the church is at the time of the rapture. The ones who are alive, they're going to be caught up. They're going to be changed in a moment, given new bodies that are a fit, resurrection-type bodies, fit for eternity. The Bible says there's another resurrection that occurs when Christ returns at his second coming, Believers who die during the uh, tribulation period, they're going to be resurrected. They're going to die and be resurrected immediately. They're going to reign with Christ for a thousand years. The Bible says out of uh, uh, the Old Testament, the Old Testament believers, numerous passages, Job 19, Isaiah 26, Daniel 12, Daniel 7, Ezekiel 37, uh, that they're going to be raised with Christ and they'll reign with him during the time of the the millennial reign. There's a resurrection. First one up, the dead in Christ. Christ. Now, this is way too complicated for the time we have, but the Bible speaks about the fact that there's going to be a time of tribulation. And then there's going to be a time where, at really after time, that Christ, God, is going to destroy the entire universe, including the earth, going to destroy by fire. And at this, then he's going to create a new heavens and an earth, new earth. Now, again, don't, don't get crazy here, but at the time when Christ, God, destroys the heavens and the earth and a new one comes, there's kind of an eternal period before the creation of the new heavens and the earth. God's going to destroy the universe, destroy the earth, going to purge creation of its uh, endemic evil, the decay that it's bought 
uh, brought upon mankind in the world because of sin. And at that point, before the, at the end, and before the new heavens and earth come, there's going to be a final resurrection. And that's the resurrection of the unbelieving dead. It's where Christ is going to raise them from the dead. Again, that's what he's talking about here in John chapter uh, 25. After the millennium, after the thousand-year reign of Christ, after the destruction of the present earth, present universe. And it's called by Jesus, again, a resurrection of judgment. Now, the apostle speaks of this, apostle Paul speaks of this, and we'll reference it here in a moment, but it's called the great white throne judgment. It's a description of all the ungodly dead coming and standing before uh, their maker and God judging them. Because there's two resurrections. There's a resurrection unto eternal life and there's a resurrection unto judgment. Right, so that's what he's saying here back in John. So if I didn't lose you and you, I didn't see anybody run out of the room screaming, you can go back to John. We'll go through that at some point here, Lord willing, in the next few weeks. Two resurrections. It's not all at the same time, not all at one moment, but two resurrections in the future. John 5, verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear my voice and shall come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. Now, what is he saying here? Is Jesus saying this is how you get saved? By doing good deeds? And obviously the answer to that question is no. Book of Romans, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight, right? Not by works, lest any man should boast, right? He's not talking about that. So what's he talking about here? Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. You know what he's doing? Is he's giving a contrast. He's giving a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. One commentator writes it like this, and it's done very well. He says, why is he giving a contrast between the righteous and the wicked? Because he can't compare a believer's faith to an unbeliever's faith because the unbeliever doesn't have any faith. He can't compare a believer's life with an unbeliever's life because they don't have life, they're dead. But he can compare their works. That's the only common commodity. And that's very helpful. Those who did good deeds, agathos, uh, useful, excellent, distinguished, upright, honorable, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. He is comparing their works. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deed, polos or phallus is the uh, uh, word, meaning worthless, of no count, bad, wicked, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, Jesus said something very similar to this over in Matthew chapter 7 about believers and unbelievers. Matthew 7, verse uh, 16, you will know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, no figs from thistles are they. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you'll know them by their fruits. So believers' faith is proven by their fruit, by their deeds. Likewise, an unbeliever is identified by their fruit, by their deed. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. And again, good works are simply evidence of salvation. They are not uh, uh, 
you know, the means of salvation or the cause of salvation. They're just uh, evidence of salvation. Again, Matthew 7, you'll know them by their fruits. Ephesians chapter 2, describing those whom God has raised from the dead to give life to them through Christ. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, right? Good deeds, which God prepared for him that we should walk in them. So Jesus says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, which all who are in the tomb shall hear my voice, and you shall come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who have been born again, those who have been born from above, those who have been saved by grace, those who have been given a new life by the mercy and the kindness, the grace of God, they're going to be raised from the dead. Christ is going to raise them from the dead. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, glorious, eternal life. Because God has created for them that, for good deeds. He's put his spirit within them. You notice here in this section of the verse, there's no mention whatsoever of judgment. Right? There's no mention. Those who are raised to a resurrection of life, God has already taken care of their sin. There's now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. It's exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus back in uh, John chapter 3, verse 18. He who believes in him, he who believes in the Christ, is not what? Not judged. It's over. The believer will never stand before the judgment throne of God, the great right throne of God, never because of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, deeds or works don't save, but they are the basis for judgment. They don't save, but they're the basis for divine judgment. That's what he says. Those who committed the evil deeds will be raised, to get in the context, those who committed evil deeds will be raised to a resurrection of judgment. Make sense? Now, one of the great lies of Satan, one of the great deceptions of Satan, beyond the fact that he's trying to always prove that there's no God, he's, that Jesus is not God come in the flesh, one of his greatest lies that he always proponents or promotes is that there's no judgment to come. Those who committed evil leads to a resurrection of judgment is what Jesus says. The devil says, well, there's no judgment. So the devil throughout many years, uh, Satan throughout many years, is always promoting these kind of lies to make people to believe that there's no final accounting for their life. Once it comes to an end, it's over. To that end, some have taught what is known as universalism, meaning that everybody's going to heaven. That's what universalism teaches. Everybody's going to heaven. Everybody's going to heaven, regardless of whatever kind of life they've lived. And when they die, they enter into eternity. Somehow God is going to wrap his arms around them and receive them into heaven and turn a blind eye to all of the evil that they've done in the world, and he's going to welcome everyone in. Again, no matter what they've done in time, no matter how they've dealt with God in time, universalism teaches that God is some kind of doddering old grandfather-type figure who uh, winks at our sin and says, boys will be boys, come on in, you all. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is holy, that God is just, that God is righteous. That God has to punish sin, and deep down inside, again, all men know that. All men know that God's not going to wink at their sin. He, they know that he's not going to turn a blind eye to their evil. They know that they have sinned that, that, that there's, uh, and sinned grievously in time. That's why they fear death. They know that there are men in the world, women in the world, who have been tremendous blasphemers, murderers, rapists. And to believe this idea that everyone's going to be treated the same way as those who were righteous is ridiculous. That's the fallacy of universalism. 
John Blanchard said it like this about universalism. He said it teaches that after death, there's prizes for everybody and punishment for nobody. That's an apt description of universalism. But again, the Bible says it's not true. Jesus Christ says it's not true. Jesus Christ says there's a judgment coming. The devil's a liar, always. Another lie that he's promoted is what's known as reincarnation. That when a person dies, they're just recycled. They return to earth in some kind of different form. Maybe they're a different person. Maybe they're an animal, a reptile, a bird, an insect. Maybe they're a cow. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. So again, to avoid that reality, to avoid the proclamation of truth, the reality of the coming, coming judgment before a holy God, some have promoted another lie. It's called annihilationism. Annihilationism, that means when you die, you just go out of existence. Poof. No more. But again, I would propose to you that men don't believe that either. Because there's something in man that is eternal. There's a sense of something uh, that is more. There's a sense of time. Again, God has put an eternity in our hearts, it says in the book of Ecclesiastes. So there's a sense that man is created for eternity, a sense that there's something, someone beyond the grave. And, and the lie or the error of annihilationism uh, violates man's sense of dignity, our sense of worth. It, it violates any sense we'd have of eternal justice. Because if you die and just go out of existence, then there's never righting of wrongs. There is no punishment for the murderer, no punishment for the rapist. And both the wicked and the child who in innocency dies or in infancy dies goes to the same place of nothingness. Annihilationism would teach that the rapist and the rapist's victim would go to the same destiny. Wiped out in a moment, they die, but again... Nobody really believes that. No more than I think men really believe in atheism. Is the lie by Satan that there's no God. Another lie that he continues to put forth, but again, Romans chapter 1, the Bible tells us that God has given all men revelation of his existence. He's done that through creation and through conscience. Therefore, in that great Romans chapter 1 passage, God says that all men are without what? Without excuse. My friends, there are no atheists. They're just a bunch of liars who are following the father of lies. And again, all men know that. All men deep down inside know that they're personally offended God. They're accountable before him. They know that justice must be served. Again, I would argue that's why men fear death. If you just go out of existence, at the end of death, then it doesn't matter what you do, does it, in time? Right? Eat, drink, and be merry. Do whatever you can get away with. Live it up. If you're big enough, away, big enough to get away with it, then, then just send to your heart's content. You want to defy death, take your chances. Take your chances of dump, jumping off a building or driving a car at 150 miles an hour and see what happens. The reason people don't do that, the reason, again, this virus has gripped the world 
is that the world knows they're accountable to their creator because God has put that sense within them. We talked about this before, right? We're destroying speculations. We're destroying false arguments of Satan and men caught in sin. Live it up. If you catch the virus, it's over. Good. Don't have to pay the bill that you spent last weekend at the resort. Everybody wants life because they know there's something else. And rightly, they should be fearful of death because there is, again, a day of terrifying judgment that's coming. There's a fearful day of judgment, a terrifying thing, the Bible says, to fall in the hands of the living God. Jesus said, look, don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming, which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, he being the Son of God, he'll hear my voice, that shall come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, those who have rejected Christ, their life is characterized by evil deeds. And again, the Bible repeatedly teaches that God judges people on the basis of their deeds. He saves us on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, but he judges people on the basis of their deeds. Because deeds manifest the condition of the heart. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus says, For out of the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. Matthew fifteen eighteen the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile a man, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. Luke six forty five, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the treasure of his evil heart brings forth that which is evil. For his mouth speaks that which fills his heart. Paul taught the same thing. Uh, about the uh, inner nature, Romans chapter 2, verse 6. God will render to every man according to his deeds, those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Verse 8, but those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. For the Jew first, also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to every man who does good Jew first and also to the Greek. Don't marvel. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. There's an hour coming which everyone, in which everyone's coming out. Everyone who are in the tombs or in the graves are going to hear my voice. They're going to come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, put a mark right there if you want, or you can just listen. I'm just going to read something, but turn over to Revelation chapter 20, and you'll see this judgment. You'll see the resurrection of judgment, Revelation chapter 20. Chapter 20. Verse 11. And I saw a great white throne... And him who sat on it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, everyone according to their deeds." 
Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Right? There's a throne in heaven. I've told you that. There's a throne in heaven that says, again, that God is sovereign. There's a throne in heaven that says he's also the ultimate judge. There's a throne in heaven, and there's one who sits upon that throne. Upon that throne. That means, again, there's an ultimate day of judgment coming because there, again, is an ultimate judge. But in this day, before this court, there's going to be no debate. No defender, no advocate, no rebuttal, no testimony, no cross-examination. This court is going to be ruled by an unsympathetic judge. And he's going to sentence without appeal the wicked to eternal punishment. And again, since the fall, Satan and his liars have tried to deceive men of the reality of this coming event. They've tried to convince men that you can't believe the Bible and you certainly can't believe this Revelation 20 bit here. They've tried to convince men that there's going to be no final tribunal. There's going to be no final judgment. He's tried to deceive sinners that they can get away with what they want to get away with in time because there's going to be no day of accountability. No future punishment. No day when they'll stand before the judge of all judges. But that's a lie. It's an absolute lie. So again, the great white throne judgment testifies that God is holy. He's just. Testifies to the fact that sin will be punished. That those who have rejected God's pardon and mercy through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be judged according to their deeds... And that judgment is guilty. They have been judged guilty already. Right? They're just awaiting the final sentence at this time in the future. I'll go back to John here. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, which all who are in the tombs hear his voice, shall come forth, those who did good deeds to resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to resurrection of judgment. Again, I've already said John 3 and 18. He who believes is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed the name of the only begotten Son of God. So again, in the context, religious leaders are standing around him. He's making proclamation after proclamation to the fact that he's God come in the flesh to his deity. Now he just makes this bold proclamation that he has the power to raise billions upon billions of ungodly sinners from all of human history, and they're going to be brought before his judgment throne. Everybody who has lived since the fall of man, who does not know God, great and small, because God is no respecter of persons. They're going to come, they're going to stand before him, and he's going to render final verdict. John Phillips, who does a tremendous job, I think, at times, of kind of putting things into a visual, he says this. There is a terrible fellowship there at the great white throne judgment. There's a terrible fellowship there. The dead, the small, and the great stand before God. Dead souls are united to dead bodies in fellowship of, in the fellowship of horror and despair. Little men, paltry women whose lives are filled with pettiness, selfishness, nasty little sins will be there. Those whose lives amounted to nothing will be there. Those whose very sins were drab, dowdy, mean, spiteful, peevish, groveling, vulgar, common, and cheap. The great will be there. Men who sinned with a high hand, with encouraging flair. Men like Alexander, Napoleon, Hitler, and Stalin will be present. Men who went in for wickedness on grand scale of the world for their stage 
uh, and who died in unrepentant, uh, who died unrepentant at the last. Now one and all are arranged on their way to be damned. A horrible fellowship congregated together for the first and the last time. That's a vivid picture. All of the ungodly from human history are all going to come before the throne. They're going to be judged in final judgment, the resurrection of judgment, the resurrection of everlasting disgrace, everlasting contempt, everlasting punishment. Christ is going to call the wicked to his throne. He's going to call them from a place called Hades, which apparently is only a temporary holding place for the wicked, the abode of the dead, dead spirits separated from God awaiting eternal punishment. Sometimes in the Old Testament, if you'll read, it's known as Sheol. It's a place of punishment. It's not final hell, but it's a place of punishment, a place of remorse, pain, and terror. Christ is going to call them to himself. He's going to provide for them bodies that are fit for eternal suffering, and they'll be judged, and then they will be sent to this place called hell, which apparently is not some like some big hole, if you will, where everybody gets the same kind of punishment, same level of torment. The Bible seems to teach there's degrees of punishment. You read that in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus' description of Capernaum and Sodom, saying, look, uh, if Sodom would have seen the miracles that were done here, they would have repented, but you guys didn't. So there seems to be degrees of torment for those who rejected God's mercy through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting, you familiar with this, hell is a doctrine that's never spoken about. I know it breaks all the homiletical rules and whatever, um, but I always preach about hell at funerals, always. Because death is an opportunity for people to see the reality of what's coming and the, nest, the destiny of those who have not repented in time and received of God's mercy. So we know that hell's not talking of talk, talking about spoken of uh, much by modern evangelicalism. Uh, modern evangelicals, sad, sadly, there's a whole lot of uh, modern evangelicals who have denied the doctrine of hell, the reality of hell. But I don't know if you knew this: uh, that almost every world religion teaches the concept of eternal punishment. Almost every world religion teaches the concept of punishment after death. Uh, Islam, Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism all teach gruesome torture painful eternal suffering after death, which signifies that all men across the board have an innate sense of justice. Men know that once they die, they're going to pay. They're going to pay for the wrongs that they've done, the evil they've committed. That's why they fear death. So the Bible teaches there is a place, a literal place, endless punishment, a place called hell, a place that is created for the devil and his angels, a place where men should not be because God has made provision for them to escape that punishment through the mercy and the kindness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But for those who reject mercy, nothing awaits them except punishment. They'll be sent to this place, this place the Bible Christ himself describes as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of endless agony, a place of remorse and anger because they've been deceived, those who end up there. Deceived by their own sin, deceived by Satan himself. However, with the anguish, the weeping, the gnashing of teeth, the endless anger, that's the place where they'll go for endless punishment. With, listen, no hope of ever escaping. No hope of ever escaping. You say, well, I, I don't know, that's kind of hard, you know. Hell's hard. Hell's hard enough. You know, I don't know if I really believe like an endless punishment. I don't know if I believe in eternal punishment. Huh. 
might find it interesting what the same words that describe eternal punishment are the same words in the Bible that describe eternal life. Therefore, if there's no eternal punishment, there's no eternal life, and there's no eternal God. If the godly are not punished forever, then the righteous do not live forever, and God does not exist forever either. But God is eternal. Heaven is the eternal dwelling place of the righteous. Therefore, hell is also eternal. John describes that eternal punishment there in that passage in Revelation 20, verse 10. He says, The devil was deceived. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet were also, who are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this is the final destination, the final judgment of all sinners throughout all of human history. Since the beginning of time, Christ is going to summon them, raise them from the dead, give them, again, new supernatural bodies that's suited for eternal torment. He's going to join them supernaturally to their body that is, again, fitted for eternal punishment. He's going to join them back together, their body and their soul. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice. And shall come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So again, the ultimate question is, what will you do with Jesus? What are you going to do with him? Who is he? What are you going to do with Jesus, who is the Christ, and what are you going to do facing the certainty of death? Are you ready to face what comes next? Again, the two most important questions that you must ever ask and answer because they determine how you live your life. They determine where you'll spend your eternal destiny. Now again, Jesus says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. doesn't come to judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So again, for those who believe, those who hear the word of Christ, those who act upon it, they have eternal life. They've passed out of judgment. They'll never face condemnation. But again, those who reject mercy... Those who commit evil deeds because their hearts are evil. The greatest evil deed they can ever commit is rejecting the person of Jesus Christ. That's the greatest evil deed. Rejecting God's kindness. Rejecting God's forgiveness. For you who reject God's kindness and reject God's goodness, there is nothing that awaits you except a future day of eternal judgment and eternal punishment. I'm going to back away from a moment and say, I didn't say all that. Jesus Christ did. Right? You read it. I explained it. I gave it a little bit of color. But this is exactly what he said. What are you going to do with him? Can't put him in a category of a mere man. He's either who he claims to be or he's not. If he's not, reject him safely. If he is, you better fall down before him and what? Worship him. Adore him. Thank him. Praise him. Because he is God worthy of worship.